Hi, and welcome to the Dime Dads Podcast. I am Deirdre Fitzpatrick. How do you find podcast guests? I get asked that question a lot by people who are launching podcasts, trying to figure out like, where do you find all these amazing people? Two main ways. One is you get pitched on people. So a PR agent might reach out to a marketing person. Sometimes it's a guest themselves hoping to get booked. The second way is you hear someone being interviewed on someone else's podcast. And in my case, I usually think, oh, I got a few questions for that person. And then you reach out. So I made a connection with today's guest, Brooke Seam, after hearing her being interviewed on Zibby Owens' podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And Zibby is um, a wonderful person and has been on this show before. And she has a lot of really great guests, and Brooke was just one of them. So that's how Brooke ended up here. Brooke has a new book out, a memoir. It's called May Cause Side Effects. Now, it is a memoir, and you're going to hear me say that over and over and over again. It is her personal story. And I'll tell you it is her personal story and memoir over and over and over again, because I want to make sure that everything that we talk about, you put it in that perspective of this is Brooke's story. This is not medical advice. This is not medical studies. This is not a book about science necessarily. This is one woman's experience in the medical world. Okay? So memoir. Say it with me. This is a memoir. (laughs) Now, the takeaway after you hear this, I think will probably be that we should all be asking a lot of more questions about our medical care. So who is Brooke Seam? If you are a Food Network fan, you may recognize Brooke from Chopped. She was on Chopped. Spoiler, she won on Chopped. What you didn't know about that time when she won on Chopped, which was more than five years ago, is that she won the show while going through severe antidepressant withdrawal. So right around the time she got booked to be on the show, She went off of antidepressants that she had been on for half of her life. She went on them as a teenager, and she had never actually gone off of them. By the time she hit her 30s, with a psychiatrist's supervision, she decided to go off the drugs to find out how she felt as an adult without any kind of chemicals or um, pharmaceuticals in her system to prop her up. Because the reality is she didn't really know what her personal baseline for mental health really was. So the memoir, hear it, memoir, the memoir tells the story of what Brooke experienced, good and bad, for a solid year as the drugs were working their way out of her system. And it is really, really fascinating. Now, Brooke is also an amazing writer. In addition to being a a cook that was, you know, good enough to win Chopped, she's a really good writer. So so the book reads um, equal parts, insightful, horrifying and funny, (laughs) which is not an easy thing to do, but she really pulls it off. The reason I think I found this book so interesting is that millions of people in this country take antidepressants to help with their mood and to improve the quality of their life. That's, That's the reason why we have them, right? But the number went up dramatically during the pandemic. And that was also when we started talking a lot more about our mental health, obviously, because we've been in such a crisis. This past summer, you may have seen that antidepressants made news headlines a lot because of a huge study that came out that basically tracked how much impact the drugs have had on patients. So the study, and we're not going to get into the nitty gritty of the study. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about why people are talking about this a little bit more than they had been. The study tracked people, and they, they, they took part in this annual health study that the U.S. National Center for Health Statistics had been doing for years. So they were tracking people you know, over 2005 to 2015. And during that time, they found that an average of 17.5 million U.S. men and women who had responded with this survey had been diagnosed with depression. 
at an average age of about 48, and nearly 58% of them had been um, prescribed an antidepressant. So they didn't go into which one, they didn't talk about this one's good, this one's bad. They just said, you know, people had been offered something that might help and that they had taken it. The thing is, those are, those are big numbers, right? And those are pre-pandemic numbers. I mean, it's a lot of people. The general result that came out of the study was that um, we have a lot to learn about how these, these drugs work. Even, even all these years later, we have a lot to learn. And so the general result of the study that came out was that um, we may be underestimating the role and impact that some of the cognitive behavioral therapy can have in addition to the drugs, but that we just still have a lot to learn about how these drugs work. So for a lot of people, it's, they're fantastic and they work really well. And with the right supervision, the right cognitive behavioral therapy, and, and the right mix of a drug for their system, it can be a really, really good thing. For other people, it's not as easy a road, okay? So as a journalist, I look at something like this, and my big takeaway, not only as a journalist, but also just as a human being, is we need to ask more questions. Like, of all things, we need to ask more questions. It's definitely true of our medical interactions. And any doctor that I ever talk to, um, sometimes like you know, I ask a lot of questions, shocker, when I'm in a doctor's office. So many questions. I come in with an index card. <laughs> I list out all my questions so I don't forget things, right? And usually as I work my way through my list, I'll stop just to like read the room and I'll say, am I asking too many questions? And there's only one right answer there if you're, if you're that doctor in that office. There's only one right answer. No, no, ask the questions. If you tell me I've asked too many questions, I'm going to walk out. Nobody's ever done that to me. So ask your questions. It's, it's your right to ask the questions. And you need to understand and be responsible for your own um physical and mental health. So I think that's what I found so interesting about Brooke's memoir is that, you know, I love that she decided to tell her experience of making this change in how she was handling her mental health and going off of antidepressants. I love that she told it as a memoir versus as some sort of scientific article or book, because this is just what happened to her. You can't dispute what happened to her because it happened to her. So this memoir, it's funny, it's sad, it's ironic, it's really well written, and most of all, this book will make you think. So on this time to ask, why Brooke decided to go off antidepressants after so many years? What was happening in her life? The backstory of how she ended up on Chopped, it's a great story. What she then went on to do after winning Chopped, where she went while still going through this antidepressant withdrawal, and why she decided to share this story so publicly and so personally as a memoir. I mean, how many times have I said memoir today? It's a lot. <laughs> and we'll also talk about what the reaction to this book has been from the medical community, from total strangers, and also how she's doing today. It's been a few years since this whole thing happened. Um, and there's been a pandemic in the middle of it as well. So we'll talk about how she just personally is doing today. Here is Brooke Seam on this week's Dying Task Podcast. Have you ever wondered how did they do that? I do all the time. I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick and Dying to Ask is the podcast that gets me off a TV news set and into candid conversations with authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and influencers I have been dying to talk to. Soak up the motivation that comes from learning how other people live their lives, how they take an idea or a goal, they follow through, and they pull it off. And maybe along the way, I'll get some answers to questions you've been dying to ask.
Brooke, welcome to the Dying to Ask podcast. It's really nice to get to catch up with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I actually heard you being interviewed on Zibby Owens podcast. Zibby's been a guest on this show before. And um, I was so captivated by your story. And I think specifically because you made May Cause Side Effects a memoir. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's such a raw retelling of your experience. I've never read anywhere else. Yeah. I, this, as far as I know, this is the first um, memoir on antidepressant withdrawal on the market, and it's very much aimed towards the general public. And that's yeah. that's a huge deal because there are so many people who try to get off antidepressants and have similar experiences, and yet it's been completely silent from pretty much all perspectives, including books, until very, very, very recently. So, so I'm pretty honored. Where to where did this whole idea of, of doing this book come from? Can you like take us back in time and, and like <laughs> wow, how this whole thing happened? It's, it's a crazy story. Yes. So um, I spent 15 years on antidepressants. I was medicated when I was a child. When I turned 30, I sort of had this light bulb moment where I was like, I should not be this depressed and considering. Go back, go back to the reason why, because yes. you were what, 15 years old and your 15. father had passed away. My father had passed away. It was 2001. So, you know, the world was somehow in some ways very different and also very much the same in the sense that I was taken to a child psychiatrist and this was the quick, easy answer. And I was 15, you know, I wasn't thinking about my long-term future on these drugs or how they might affect my developing mind. I just did what the adults told me to do. I wanted to get good grades and, you know, please my parents, like, mm -hmm. like a lot of kids. So it was, it was a pretty thoughtless action on the account on the part of everyone. And then I turned 18 and suddenly I'm in, in charge of my own medical choices and decisions. And at this point they were part of who I was. I didn't think there was any harm. So we just kept taking them so on and so forth. 15 years later, I was not doing well. Um, I was more depressed than I'd ever been. I was having, you know, kind of suicidal ideations. And it just kind of occurred to me one day that, well, um, maybe I shouldn't, be this depressed if I'm on antidepressants, like there's something that's not working. Can I ask you a quick question? Did, did going on the antidepressants change your outlook? Like, were you functioning in a different way? Did they achieve what the goal had been? Uh, so the answer is yes, they changed my outlook, but I wouldn't say they made it better. Um, what kind of happened is I, I sort of just entered into this general existence of lack of ambition, lack of curiosity. You know, I, I think numbing is a term that we hear a lot. And I do think that that's true in some sense. I mean, I still, you know, kind of felt like happy or down or frustrated or sad, but it was just really blunted. But more than anything, I think it really kind of robbed me of the ambition and desire to have a future and to be very excited about that. And that was a kind of insidious sort of change that didn't seem like a big deal at the time, but then flash forward 15 years and, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a job that I hate in a city that's not good for me. I have no savings because I didn't want to live, you know, in, into the future. So why would I save for it? And that those were all the thoughts I had when I was like, wait, I've been medicated my entire adult life. So this is, this is strange. Something's weird here. Um, also at the same time, I had this opportunity completely fall into my lap to travel around the world for a year. It was this new startup called remote year. 
they were appealing to digital nomads of which I wasn't one, but I saw an ad on Facebook. Wow. You're like total trendsetter. (laughs) Yeah, this was, I mean, yes, this was 2016. So well before anyone had thought that we could, you know, conduct the entire world over zoom. But, um, I, I saw a Facebook ad and I was really did not want to live in the life I was living. And so I just kind of, I think I was a little buzzed one night. I had one too many glasses of wine and I was like, sure, apply, send it out thinking I will never, ever get chosen. And, you know, of course I I did get chosen. I followed through with all the application processes and got an offer for one of these spots. And I just, I, I had just had a moment again, this was right after I had turned 30 and realized I had, you know, spent so long drugged. I kind of said, you know what? this is not an opportunity that comes twice. And I think I need to take it because my life needs to change. Uh And I don't want to be on all these drugs while I do it. It's going to be very difficult logistically to get them filled. I let me just go see a psychiatrist and get off of them. And I'll have six months to figure out my baseline. And what, Um, when you went to the psychiatrist, what did the psychiatrist think when you brought that up? You know, I mean, there's a couple caveats here. So the first one is I hadn't been seeing the psychiatrist for, you know, like many years. She didn't know me. My general practitioner had been prescribing me these drugs for at that point, eight years. Okay. So I I had the sense to say I should see a psychiatrist specifically, but I hadn't seen someone I knew. So I walked in there, I told her the situation and she was one very, uh, very, she was not encouraging. She, she's like, she straight up said, I don't think it's a good idea for you to get off these, especially not now. And then I had to push. And once I pushed, she kind of said, okay, fine. Well, you know, stop taking your effects or XR because I was on 37.5 milligrams, which is the lowest dose on the market. So she couldn't prescribe me 20 grams Mm -hmm. or 10 grams. That's not how it works. So she just said, stop taking it. Call me if there's a problem. She actually gave me a script for Prozac to help with the possible withdrawal effects that she said would be like having the flu for a few days. And so I followed her advice and it just, it turned out that it was terrible advice in a time where we really didn't know any of this, you know, information. Um, so, but then I, when I started having really severe withdrawal effects, I was too scared to tell her what was happening because I didn't trust her one. And I was afraid that if I told her that I was having, like, had a lot of really terrible intrusive thoughts, like violent intrusive thoughts about harming myself or other people. And I thought like, oh God, like I must actually be insane. And if I tell her this, she's going to put me on an involuntary psychiatric hold. And I didn't want to go to the psych hospital. And so I was too scared to tell her what was happening, um, which happens to a lot of people. And so I just like waited it out. And yeah, you know, I, I wish I didn't have to do that, but I do think it was the right choice. I, of all the things that have happened to me and the choices I've made and wish I'd made differently, that is one that I really think I made the right call. So along, right around the same time, there was, an, there was another thing that you- There was another thing, yes. There was another thing. And that is that you applied to be on the show Chopped. Yes. How did that, okay, how did that happen? So I'm a chef by trade. I went to culinary school. I worked in, you know, fancy restaurants with tweezers from New York. And then I opened a bakery and we were doing, you know, well on paper. I, I, I was a miserable human, but the bakery looked like it was doing well. It's a very New York story, by very the way. Very New York, yeah. Oh, and even more New York. I met the producer of Chopped at a, at a party for my physical therapist. We had, you did. Right, we had the same physical therapist. And so we met, got introduced and she was like, oh, you should apply for Chopped. We always need women and local local people. 
And I was like, there's translation. No TV production is very expensive. You're here. You know how to cook and you're cute. And we need to meet our female quota. Yep. That's awesome. Uh, awesome. And I was like, no, like, you're not going to pick me. I haven't touched a vegetable. I own a bakery. Like why <laughs> would I do this? But again, I had probably at that point, you know, I was, uh, you know, I was, I was self-soothing with a little bit more white wine than I normally should have and do anymore. Um, but I literally got a little buzzed and applied because this is what I did. I like would go home and sit by myself and think about ways that I could live any life other than the one I was living. Yeah. So I applied to all sorts of stuff, remote year, chopped. I applied to be a goat sitter in the Alps. Uh, I tried to get a job in McMurdo station and, and in Antarctica, um, <laughs> like just anything. And so I just never expected anything to work out. And then, you know, the, much like remote year with chop, they were like, okay, coming for an interview. And then it just is a long process. But then one day they're like, here you go. And this was about a month or two into antidepressant withdrawal. And I was like, how is this happening at the same time? I also figured I would be over the withdrawal by the time Chopped filmed. That didn't turn out to be the case, but I hope Because you had been told, which is pretty typical advice, about two weeks, the stuff should be out. Yes. And then you'll be kind of wherever you're going to be. Yeah. So you go into it and you go on to this TV show, which I'll ask you about later in the show. I want to know some of the, the the same stuff. I'm sure people ask you at parties all the time, but um, you go on to the show and it's a great story. Not only do you go on the show, but you win the show. While all of this is going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I have eternal gratitude for the editors of that show who had the opportunity to make me look like a complete and total incompetent mess and chose <laughs> not to do that. There was a lot of crying <laughs> that you didn't see. There was a lot of like needing to be calmed down and just like, like I felt like I had so much energy in me that I was, I was, I was almost shaking from the adrenaline and the overstimulation. And I think the only reason why that didn't kind of make it through is probably because it didn't make for very good TV, but also the show itself is a little frantic. So the fact that I was like literally looking around like this sometimes, you know, meant that it kind of worked. (laughs) Yeah. But does anybody at this point have any idea this personal decision you've made, you know, to go off of, nobody has any idea. Not while we were filming. No. And, um, most of my friends didn't even know what I was going through. It was, it was something that I didn't understand really, and didn't, couldn't really communicate. And I also, there was really struggling with this idea that, okay, what is, what is me? What is my baseline? What is in a depressed withdrawal? Like, who is what? Like, I didn't know. And so a lot of the times I just was thinking like, I guess this is just how, who I am and how I am. And I'm going to have to learn to get used to that. And I had been very adept at, you know, going out into the world with the the right culturally appropriate face for so long. I was kind of able to do that in withdrawal too. There, there was times when that really cracked, cracked through, but I, uh, I was good at, covering stuff up. You know, I was a ballet dancer growing up. I'm good on stage. You know, <laughs> you can't let anyone yeah, know what's and really going a, on. You know, you're a pleaser, as you said. Uh, yeah. Like so exactly. many women, right? I mean, you want attention, but only the good kind. So, <laughs> so I was in some ways kind of used to that process. And uh, it wasn't until later that I realized kind of what a feat it actually was to make it through this very intense experience on Chopped. And then also, get on this plane to Malaysia and get there without, you know, 
getting you know attracting the wrong kind of attention in the process well and that's and that's where the book to me like really like kind of takes off and you yeah. tell this this tale of this this next year with these yeah. amazing adventures and crazy experiences but also like what you're really thinking and feeling inside that is at times kind of excruciating and at times absolutely hilarious i mean like <laughs> you walk that line back and forth with really beautiful writing Thank but you. such like honesty that i think it's it's really eye opening to see what this experience has really been like, especially for people now, after the last couple of months of all the, the news headlines that have been made about, that have really challenged what we know about mm-hmm. antidepressant use and specifically right. the withdrawal. Right. Right. I mean, it's changed. I, in some ways can't even imagine, like I couldn't imagine the amount of press and research that would start to form around this experience when I was writing this book, you know, I wrote this, I started writing it and um, really started writing it in 2017, but it was based on a lot of uh, journals I'd kept over the year from starting in 2016. So I remember seeing a big article in the New York times. I still remember the title. It was something like uh, many people taking antidepressants discover they cannot quit. And that was 2018. And I almost fell out of my chair when I saw that it was like the first major public recognition that what I had gone through was not a singular experience and that quite literally millions of people, possibly tens of millions of people around the world go through this. And from that moment on, I said, I I can't stop with the, I can't stop. I have to figure out a way to get this book published because this is going to start to change. And I hope that 10 years from now, God, maybe even five years from now, it is just as much of a part of the conversation when we start to medicate people as it is, you know, or when, when you go in and the doctor suggests that you take antidepressants, it needs to come with the second half of the conversation, which is, and this is how we're going to take you off. We're only going to leave you on for this, you know, short period of time because one, we've never studied antidepressant use over for more than like a couple of years. I think the maximum trial was like or the, well, the drug trials are really short. They're a matter of weeks, but I think some people were followed, you know, in a few trials around the world for up to like two years, but we really do not know how antidepressants affect the mind and body long-term. Mm-hmm. And yet we have so many people who are, you know, everyone, you know, who's taken an antidepressant doesn't stay on them for six months where most people are on them for longer. And we're now getting into a period where people like me are on them for decades. And we don't know how that affects people. But nobody tells you that when you show up to a doctor's appointment, nobody tells you how they're going to pull you off. And it's not even, I can't even really blame any one person. I mean, this isn't part of the education system. When you're, when you go to med school, there aren't classes on deprescribing. There aren't classes on uh, how trauma affects mental health. Like we have the research, but it has not made it into the practice. One thing I think, especially right now after the last couple of years that is, is concerning is how many people have struggled with mental health. And I always say like, for people who say that they've had no, no experiences with anxiety or depression over the last couple of years, I'm like, well, were you living? Because this was a pretty rough time. Right. You know, I mean, I remember going into my doctor's office and they gave me, as I was checking in this during the pandemic, um, a forum and it was like the depression screening. Mm -hmm. And it said, you know, have you felt sad or anxious in the last three weeks? And I like handed it back. And I said, anybody who tells you they're not is lying. And they're the ones you should be worried about. Yeah. 
look at this room, like everybody feels like this. Yeah. But because of that, we have a lot of people who have turned to help, whether it's pharmacological or um, therapy or, you know, you name it, have really needed some help. So I feel like there's a there's an ear and an appetite now to learn more. And the thing I keep getting out of your book is not like a condemnation of the medical field. It's a, Hey, as a patient, you need to be your own advocate. You need yes. to ask questions, mm -hmm. ask lots and lots of questions mm -hmm. going in. And that's true of all times, but maybe especially true when it comes to things like this. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, the medical field has really changed in the past, I mean, even 10 years, but definitely 20 years. And if you think about like kind of, you know, my parents and the way that they always talked about going to the doctor, it's, you know, you have, you know, you, you have a fever, you go to the doctor, you break your arm, you go to the doctor. And then the doctor is the expert that knows how to fix it. They were raised in an era where, you know, the, the mental health field is really only eh, 50, 60 years old. And it really started changing a lot, especially as we got into the eighties and nineties. And you know, research has changed so much and the amount of information has changed so much to expect one person, your doctor to be an expert on every single thing that you are taking. And also to be the expert on every single thing that, you know, there are other, what, hundreds of patients, thousands, if they work in a, you know, in a hospital patients, like to expect them to be the expert on everything is not realistic anymore. They, that no one person has the capacity to do that. So I think what that means is it doesn't mean you completely reject everything your doctor says, but it means you work as a team. You understand the limitations of that human who is trying to do the best they can. Well, you know, hopefully if, if your doctor is, you know, a jerk, then go find a new one because those exist too. But it works better if you can also bring your expertise of your own body and the research that you have done, which needs to go further than, hey, I read, you know, I read an article in, you know, Women's Health Magazine. Like, it's got to go further than that. But like, if you have serious concerns, bring that information to your doctor. Like, that's kind of what I hope to, you know, impart here and what I help people do, because I'm not a doctor. I can't tell you how to go off your psychiatric drugs. I don't know you. <laughs> Nor should and I'm you. not qualified to do that. Right. Right. But what here's what I can do. I can give you a list of resources about you know, your specific drug that you're on and how people for the past 10 years have learned how to taper off of it because we, we have that information. I can point you to the research that's being done on antidepressant withdrawal. I can like tell you where to print it out and give that packet to your doctor and say like, look, this is, what do you think about this? Do you know anything about this? And what I'm finding and talking to, you know, friends who are going, who are also withdrawing from drugs, which God, there's so many of them. It's amazing how I started to collect people who are having similar experiences. But what happens is most of the time their doctors are really open to learning. Like there's just, we're so early in this process. There's not a ton of continuing education available. There's a lot of pushback from the pharmaceutical companies, especially in this country, there's no real regulation. It's a bit of the wild west out there. So like help your doctor, help, mm -hmm. help, help them help you. And if, and then trust your intuition. If you're feeling really like this person is not getting what you're saying is not understanding where you want to be and how to get you there. And it's time to find a new doctor, which is its own, you know, path. Of yeah. Health. But that's just what I hope here is by doing that, you can, you can help reduce the chance that you may have a negative reaction towards being pulled off these drugs because a doctor who is either too overwhelmed or not interested in continuing education has told you to just stop cold turkey. Like what is, the, 
What's the feedback you've gotten? Have you gotten feedback from the drug industry? You know, I have not heard from them yet. Um, I, I think that, you know, I'm still pretty small potatoes. Uh, you know, there's, 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 if the New York times is able to talk about this topic, I can too. (laughs) And I think that at the end of the day, they're still making, you know, tens of billions of dollars a year in the most profitable industry there is. So I don't think they're too worried about me. Um, I also would love to see just more pharmaceutical options available in the sense that, you know, like I said earlier, this, the smallest dose of Effexor XR on the market is 37.5 milligrams. I would love to be able to see you get a pill prescribed to you uh, from your doctor and filled at a Walgreens for 30 and 25 and 20 mm-hmm. and 15 and 10 and five, and maybe even then down into the grams. Right. So I personally think I would like to give pharmaceutical companies many more options to create many more pills and make lots of money while also allowing people to taper off of these drugs slowly and not have to be their own, you know, drug cartel at home with tweezers and a drug scale, literally pulling out beads from a capsule, which is what happens. Now, to be fair, there are some people who have really positive experiences and it is a better physiological fit Mm -hmm. and, and it is a really good benefit. It's just a really imperfect science to Mm -hmm. find something that works well for people. And maybe that's part of the the challenge that at least that's what it seemed like as I read these articles and seeing these different developments over the last couple of months, I always get the feeling like people are trying to do the right thing. The industry is trying to get to the right place, but it's really, really hard. And we're in the infancy of really understanding how these things work. One of the biggest problems uh, with psychiatric drugs, as opposed to, you know, a physical, physical drug, if you want to call it that, I mean, they're all physical, but we can't measure anything with psychiatric drugs. You can't go get a blood test and, you know, see where your serotonin or dopamine levels are on Monday with the drug versus without, like we, we, there's literally not a single test where we can measure this and they don't even know how the drugs work to begin with their, their hypotheses, but that's, that's it. We don't actually know. So it becomes very much, you know, I think it's like, you know, shooting darts in the dark. like some people just by nature are going to hit that bullseye. You're going to get it. Uh, the research says around 15% of people with very severe depression, usually with severe depression can benefit. That's not a very high number though. And that's really not that high. And that's consistent research that has recently been, um, recently been confirmed. So, you know, the other 85% of the people are either having no side effects. So it's like neutral or they're having bad reactions or there's the placebo effect too, um, which is a very powerful thing. And so, you know, I don't know. I just like, I don't have the answer here. I'm also not a researcher, but it's just, it frustrates me that we compare these psychiatric drugs and their costs and pros and cons to a physical drug that is so easily measured, you know, like very often you hear, and I heard the line, you know, it's like when a diabetes, when when a diabetic needs insulin, right? You're depressed. We give you an antidepressant. The name itself seems to imply Mm -hmm. through smart marketing that it's going to help. Right. But it's not the same. You can measure insulin rates. You cannot measure anything that these drugs may or may not be having an effect on. So I think we've done, the public has really been kind of duped to think that it's that simple. And, uh, it, you know, it's a nice, it's a nice story, but it's so just not true. How, how are you doing now? 
Oh, I'm, I'm doing great. Um, so, I mean, re- releasing this book and, uh, you know, I've had some personal life changes and it's been a very objectively difficult time in a lot of ways, but I've also had so much gratitude because it's been, you know, six years since I've been on any psychiatric drugs or really any prescription drug. And I'm just so glad I can handle it and that I understand, you know, the ebbs and flows of life and I can sit with a really you know, kind of deep, maybe even dark feeling and know that it's not going to be forever. And I feel like that's kind of what I've earned through this experience. Um, Antidepressant withdrawal was the hardest, worst thing I've ever been through. And nothing, so far, nothing has compared, including, you know, losing my father. So in some ways I feel like, you know, maybe hopefully I got the worst of it already and everything else I get to take with just a little extra slice of gratefulness because, it's not as bad and I know I can get through it. Um, but it, but it took a long time for me to stabilize and feel like myself and know what What? that means. And to even know what like yourself actually was to get back to that baseline that you had talked about. What works for you now when you have, um, an overwhelming or in anxious, dark kind of time, what actually works for you? What are your go-tos? The biggest thing for me is I have learned that, uh, Depression, I think, is a little different because very often that's a reaction to a negative event. So even just the awareness of, okay, you've been through this terrible thing. For example, I'm going through a separation right now, which just sucks, right? So it's reasonable to feel really down. Uh, So even just making that connection always helps me. Anxiety, I feel like it's a little bit trickier sometimes because, you know, things can seem fine on the outside but yet you're all worked up about something. But I find that it really is a map that if I'm having, you know, anxious thoughts where I'm constantly chewing on something or I can't sleep, there's something in my life that really needs fixing or changing or erasing, mm-hmm. uh, whether or not that's, you know, a person, a job, you know, just a choice I've made, like even being over overextended. So it just takes a lot of trial and error for me, but I start to really pay attention to when I feel good, when I feel clear and calm and when I don't. And if you can become self-aware of that in the moment, you can start to look around and see patterns, right? Okay. If I I don't feel good around this person, but I feel good when I'm alone in my house with my dog. Okay. Like maybe this person gets less of my time for now, or maybe they need to, you know, exit my life altogether. It's, it's, it, it's just this kind of deep self-awareness and, you know, I sometimes I'll write things down I'll kind of track how I'm feeling through the day, but I just find if I, it started by making really big changes, like leaving my business, leaving New York city. Um, I had to leave my dog, which broke my heart, but she was in an amazing, amazing situation. But that was like the big tumor I had to exercise from my life. And when I did that, then I was able to start saying, okay, like, when do I feel good? okay, I feel good when I can look out my window and see nature. What does that mean? That means I probably don't live in a big city, right? It was just very small things that I started to put together. And over time that compounds to to a place where you're kind of living in a way that your soul wants to. As a parent of teenagers, I find that so helpful to know questions to ask. Yeah. Because that time that we're talking about, especially those teenage years, those are the times Mm -hmm. when you are 
you're personally, you're trying to figure out who are you and, and you're starting your baseline and to be able to maybe ask those things, especially given where our world has been and yes. where we're heading. I think that's really valuable for anybody who feels like they're going through a tough time or they're close to somebody who is. Yeah. And I think that especially for teenagers, teenagers, it's so tricky because they're not fully baked yet. Right. Like, you know, the wires haven't totally connected. Nope. We're missing a lot of the free prefrontal cortex. Brooke, I have boys. It's especially oh, bad. God bless you. But I I think that we can get better ounce better answers out of our teenagers if we ask more specific questions. Like, and I think that's actually true of adults as well, you know. And I don't mm-hmm. have kids, so I'm making a few leaps here, not knowing that. But I know that just for myself you know, an open-ended question, like how was your day is almost too broad because the real answer is, well, I've felt 40 different ways in my day. Like which version do you want? Or, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, who knows, you know, I mean, especially a lot of people, you have multiple careers, but I think the better questions are, when do you feel curious? When do you feel most like yourself? you know, who, who makes you feel most like yourself. Right. And then if you can kind of change the focus, you can start to, you know, draw the little, I'm going to use the bullseye again. You can draw the bullseye around, around the things, right. Because, you know, for example, like the idea of working in an office might make you, you know, want to shrivel up and die. And you also love being on the computer. What does that mean? Right. Maybe you know, who knows? I'm just making things up. But Mm -hmm. I I think that the feelings, what makes you feel is a better question because then, than an intellectual question, if that makes sense, because it totally makes sense. The heart don't necessarily align. Absolutely. It absolutely makes sense. Okay. This has been so great, but can I ask you some chop questions? I want to ask you the questions and I'm sure you get asked by like everybody. Love it. Yeah. You already told me the funny story about how you ended up on the show. So I'll skip that. Just pulling out my list here. Um, is it true that you next never actually had to show people that you could cook before you were on the show? No, never once. Like, I don't know what sort of due diligence they do in the background, but I'm pretty convinced that, you know, an adept con artist could like fake their way onto the show, never having boiled water. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. Maybe they're like, did this person actually work in a restaurant or own one? Sure. Okay. We're good. But yeah, I think I'm sure there are a lot of objectively bad cooks that end up on there just because they they're good on TV. (laughs) I didn't feel like I was a great cook when I ended up on there. I was like, I'm vastly underqualified. I make cupcakes for a living. (laughs) (laughs) Is it true that the basket of the ingredients is really like a total mystery or did you really know? Yeah. So I, we knew that it was a chocolate themed episode. Um, I don't know why they told us that it was a themed episode, but I think in the same way, I mean, if you're yeah. filming a Christmas episode in July, like it kind of makes sense to give you a heads up, but we had no idea what was in each individual basket and knowing that it was chocolate really didn't help me all that much because in my head, I thought like M&Ms, Oreos, I thought it would be kind of like very, I don't know, like childlike chocolate for some reason. But as it turned out, it was like, white chocolate covered caviar. I didn't even know that was a thing. So it didn't really make a difference. And I definitely didn't have any idea what was in the baskets when we opened them. That's so funny. How long a day is it? And is food, um, just like stone cold when the judges are critiquing and tasting and all that? Yeah, it's definitely, it's a long day. Uh, if you get eliminated in round one, you go home around 10 or 11 in the morning and you show up at five. If you win, you go home 
closer to 10, 11, 12 at night, because you have to do a many hours long verbal recap of your day, which is how they get the talking heads and why everyone's yes. talking in first person, even though it happened in the past. Uh, so yes, the food is definitely not the temperature you intend it to be at. If you have an ice cream or something frozen, they'll toss it in the freezer. But if you have a hot soup, it's lukewarm soup. And so, so I think funny. you need to consider that when you're, you know, competing, maybe don't, <laughs> maybe don't put something that congeals when cold, like on your plate. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Okay. You just talked about the little voiceover part that we watch, but that's kind of like in reality television becoming yeah. the confessional and, yes. and people do speak in the present tense, which is a very difficult thing to do it's hours after something strange. had happened. Can you explain to people? I mean, I know just from a television standpoint, yeah. how tough that would be, but for somebody who had never done TV yeah. and was actually going through antidepressant yeah. withdrawal at the time, um, how tough was that to do? Well, there's always a producer there kind of like guiding you a little bit, uh, which helps. Like if you start to say, well, I was making, I was making the ganache, they interrupt you and say, I am making the ganache. I am whisking the ganache. <laughs> and you're like, okay, start over. And so, I mean, they could interrupt you 20 times in a sentence, but you kind of start to catch yourself a little bit. It does feel super awkward, especially if like I knew I won and I was talking about you know, round one where I almost got chopped. So you kind of have to try and not give away too much. Um, but the best part about, well, I, you know, I'll, 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 I'll pop the bubble of reality TV for any of your listeners, because this, Please. this delights me and entertains me when I watch shows now is look out for what are called Franken bits or Franken bites. I think it's Franken bits. I'm not sure, but it's basically when they take two sound bites. So I guess it's Franken bite and mush them together, even though that's not what you said. And it's completely legal because you sign your life away. So the best example of this is when in Chopped, they come to your place of business, you know, a couple weeks, a month before, and they film you and they put together your kind of opening package, which is like, this is, this is Chef Brooke. She owns a bakery. Like, look how cute she is with her cupcakes, right? That's effectively what happens. <laughs> but then I'm sitting there with these producers and it had been all day long and they were like, okay, you need to have like good, you know, sign off phrase, you know, something like, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to beat the competition or whatever it is. Like you need something. And I was like, no, that's the cheesiest thing I've ever heard. That's not who I am. And so they kept trying to get me to say it. And I just refused. I said, like, figure something else out, man. Like, you know, you're the editor, get creative. So I'm thinking I avoided this. And then I go nope. watch the show, go watch the show. And, you know, within the first like 30 seconds of the show, all you hear is me saying, um, you know, I think winning is going to be a cakewalk. And I was like, Stop. I didn't say that, but I did say at some point cake, I think winning walk may have even said the word cakewalk at some point, but like they mush it together and you can tell the ways to tell are one, the person's never actually talking when you hear them say that, like they're showing some, you know, B-roll of the inside of a kitchen or the back of some, but the back of your own head. And you can even hear like the, the pitch doesn't quite match up. Like it changes, especially shows that are produced like within days, like, and it's, they don't, they don't massage, <laughs> they don't massage it very well. So yeah, I, I would say look out for that. It changes your reality TV show experience. That is one of the best uh, backstories I've ever heard on this podcast. That was fantastic. Okay, so what are you doing now? I know we need, we, uh, we need to wrap this up, but what are you doing now? What are you doing next? Uh, well, I'm doing you know a lot of marketing for the book. Um, it's 
you know, it's out, it's hopefully doing well. It's available in Canada, the UK, Australia, and the US, of course. So I have a little bit of travel coming up for that. And then, you know what, but I still, I still work as a, as a chef, you know, for money because authors aren't known for their riches. Um, (laughs) I, I work specifically with elite athletes and elite performers. So I am kind of like a personal hello fresh, right? If you're, if you're a major league baseball player and you're looking for a 1% edge and you have a specific macro count and you have specific foods you can and can't eat and you're getting drug tested and you need someone to basically prepare your food from, you know, start to finish. So you don't have to think about it and you know exactly where it's coming from. Like I'm the person you call. And so I will make custom meal plans for, you know, elite performers and ship it and send it to them. And I also do some research and development on the side. So I've taken all my years of cooking work and distilled it into the parts I really like, which are, you know, making my own schedule and working in my own kitchen and not having to deal with an angry customer uh, because they didn't have enough truffles on their pasta. So I uh, love it. it worked out. <laughs> I love it. What are the best ways for people to keep up with you? Uh, yes. Yeah, so my website and all of my social media handles are my name, Brooke Seams. So that's B-R-O-O-K-E. S-I-E-M as in Mary. You can find me on all of them, um, occasionally being active and sometimes not. I also have a newsletter called Happiness is a Skill that you can find on Substack. And it's, you know, it's it's about happiness as a practice. And it, we cover what's new in antidepressant research and withdrawal research and philosophies and sometimes just feel good stuff or whatever's going on. And that's a little place where I can interact directly with the people who you know, are really interested in my work and there's a little less noise there. So I really, it's, it's wonderful. I am a new subscriber and I think, I think it's a real gift that you have shared your life and the experiences. The book is may cause side effects and it is absolutely fantastic. I hope people will check it out. And again, it's a memoir. It's a memoir people right there. Right right on the front. It says a memoir, one person's experience and uh, what a life. Brooke, thank you so much for being on the Dying Desk Podcast. Thank you so much. If you have a minute to leave a rating or review for the show on whatever podcast platform that you're listening to it on right now, that would be amazing. Um, Even better would be if you just shared the show with a friend. And it's super easy to do that from whatever podcast platform you're on. There's usually an option on Apple. There are three little dots in the lower right-hand part of your screen. And you can text the show to a friend. And I do that a lot with my friends all the time, actually, maybe too much. But it's nice sometimes just to say, hey, like, I, I listened to this, I found it really interesting, and I thought maybe you might get something out of it. So if you know somebody who maybe might find the subject matter that Brooke was talking about interesting, I think um, it could be a really helpful show for a lot of people. So if you do that, I think that would be really nice. Looking ahead quickly to next week, we have a couple of episodes next week in honor of Ironman California, which is coming up in Sacramento, California, where I'm based on October 23rd. I'm actually doing the race been training kind of quietly here for the last couple of months. The thing about Ironman, it's a 140.6 mile race all done in one day over 17 hours. The thing about this race that I love is that every single person in the race, and there are thousands of them, every single person has a reason why they do it. Like there's a story, like there's a story behind the story. It's nonstop, just kind of motivation and inspiration from hearing about like, why do people do something that on the surface of the thing seems so utterly ridiculous. And for some people, maybe it is. Maybe my reason is ridiculous. I don't know. But there are a lot of people who do things for bigger reasons that are much bigger than themselves. And I have a couple of episodes coming up with people who are doing just that. So I hope you'll be able to tune in next week. If you have been 
finding yourself lacking in physical motivation to get out there and work out, these are going to be great episodes to listen to while you're trying to walk on the treadmill, walk the dog, whatever, okay? So keep them in mind. We'll have a couple episodes for you next week to tie in with Ironman California. Thanks to everybody for listening today, and we'll see you next time on the Dying to Ask podcast.